Welcome to the Bird and Egg. So I guess we'll just jump right in. Um, the first topic I wanted to talk about here was um, Chesterton's orthodoxy, and in particular, some comparisons that I've noticed between Chesterton's thought and uh, what Kierkegaard is doing, um, in particular what Kierkegaard is doing in the phys- philosophical fragments and the concluding unscientific postscripts. Uh, one of Kierkegaard's big themes is that of intensity. Right? He talks about the importance um, to do what you're doing intensely, um, not sort of wishy-washy. Um, Kierkegaard is often making fun of sort of uh, wishy-washy armchair theologians um, or just the common Christian who finds it a bit too easy to be Christian, uh, to just kind of go along with the flow. Um, and something that Chesterton is doing in his own reflections on his journey to Christianity and, and why um, why it just made sense to him, why it fit the way the world seemed to him to be, um, is the, the relation that Christianity has to the passions and to this intensity. Um, I'm on page 170, and he, Chesterton saying that paganism declared that virtue was in a balance. Christianity declared it was in a conflict. The collision of two passions apparently opposite. Um, and so what he means by this is for pagan virtues and for virtue ethics, um, for instance, the Stoics or what Aristotle's doing in the Nicomachean Ethics, um, all the virtues come together. They are um, really one whole. And to be a virtuous person, you really need to have all of those virtues, uh, at least to some degree. Um, but what Christianity is doing is he's, is just taking a closer look um, at these virtues, and it seems that they're actual, actually conflicting tensions um, in the virtuous life. Um, di- passions which are somehow opposite and yet held together. Um, for Chesterton, this is the new insight into the way the world works and into the way um, passions work, at least in a healthy human being. Um, and Chesterton uses the distinction between the martyr and the suicide. Um, that is, the martyr is doing something good in giving his life um, because he's giving his life for a reason. There's, he's giving up a good, that of preserving his life, um, for um, some other good. Whereas the suicide is also giving up his life. Um, but the, whatever good he's pursuing, um, it's not for the right reason. Um, that is, he's not really appreciating the good of life. Whereas the martyr, um, he's giving away his life also, but he he appreciates that life and he wouldn't give it up if it weren't for a really good reason. Um, Chesterton says that if you look at courage, um, this is an om- almost an, a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live taking the form of a readiness to die. Right? This is quite different from the suicide who doesn't have a strong desire to live, but only has half of the equation. He has a readiness to die. Um, that strong desire to live is essential. And here we have a, a strong comparison to 
what Kierkegaard is doing in um, his understanding of the night of infinite resignation. Um, that is to be properly this night that Kierkegaard describes in fear and trembling. You, you have to really appreciate what you're giving up. You have to say, this is not for me. And yet I want it more passionately than um, those who aren't resigned to losing it. Um, this is very similar to what Chesterton is describing in the insight of a Christianity. Um, the martyr, Chesterton says, must not merely wait for death, uh, for then he would be a suicide and will not escape. Rather, he must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water and drink death like wine. Right. And Christianity has marked the limits of what's going on here, this riddle, in the awful graves of the suicide and the hero, showing the distance between him who dies for the sake of living, the martyr, and him who dies for the sake of dying, the suicide. And so there's this somehow a reconciliation in Christianity between two, two contrasting passions, the desire to live and the desire to, um, and the willingness to die, right? It's not just one passion. Um, Christianity separated these two ideas and then exaggerated them both. In one way, man was to be haughtier than he had ever been before. In another way, he was to become humbler than he had ever been before. Um, insofar as I am man, I am the chief of creatures, right? This is one thing that Christianity tells us, that man was created in the image of God. And yet, it also teaches, insofar as I am a man, I am the chief of sinners. Right? There's this recognition of the fall and personal sin as well. So, there's this intensity to the Christian's life. There's a this twofold um, passion which is somehow united um, and that's compared to a, a sort of a one-dimensional view um, that is attributed to the pre-Christian world. Another point of similarity between Chesterton and Kierkegaard is the um, perspective they both offer on reason. Um, both of them are hesitant to allow reason to run rampant. Neither of them are opposed to reason. Um, Chesterton in particular is a champion of reason. Uh, but there's this awareness that to overemphasize certain aspects of the rational and forget other aspects of the human being is to become less human. Um, so for instance, uh, Kierkegaard um, speaks often of speculative thought and how if you, if you really commit yourself to speculative thought, to objective, purely objective thought, uh, you will by necessity um, lose parts of yourself. You will, um, by stripping yourself from the equation, no longer be a part of that equation. Um, some sorts of objectivity are valuable, of course, in abstract thinking and mathematics or logic. Um, you don't want too much of you to be there, right? You just want 
the truth of the, the mathematics or the truth of the logical equation, the logical syllogism, um, to, to come to the fore. And you want that to be your guiding star when you're doing those, those sciences. Uh, but Kierkegaard is hesitant to allow the whole world to be handed over to the logician and the mathematician. Um, they have their place, but they cannot explain all that there is to be explained. Um, and Chesterton brings up uh, a similar idea, I think, when he's at the beginning of orthodoxy um, talking about the madman. And he says, uh, the madman is the one who most believes in himself. So we should be careful praising someone just because they believe in himself, uh, because nobody believes in himself more than the madman. Um, and in fact, nobody is more rational than the madman, because the madman has a perfect system. The madman sees the world in a particular way and can can make sense of the whole world with his theory. Right? If, if you think that you're the queen of Persia, um, you can you can come up with an explanation for anything that you encounter such that it fits with your idea that you're the queen of Persia. Um, and this can obviously be kind of a, a dangerous obsession. It can lead you away from the truth, um, but it doesn't cease to be rational just because it's untrue. Um, and, and in fact, an overemphasis on this purely rational life um, can lead to insanity. Um, it's almost the cause of the insanity. He says, uh, we shouldn't, we shouldn't attribute insanity to an overactive imagination, but rather someone who has insufficient imagination. Uh, most of the great poets have, uh, not only been very sane, but extremely businesslike. Imagination does not breed insanity. Exactly what does breed insanity is reason. Poets do not go mad but chess players do. Mathematicians go mad and cashiers, but creative artists very seldom. And this is from page 27. Um, and Justin in sort of cautions, of course, I am not, as will be seen, in any sense attacking logic. I only say that this danger, namely the danger of madness, does not lie in logic, only in imagination. Sorry, does lie in logic, not in imagination. The danger of insanity comes from having just too tight of a world, um, a world that doesn't um, admit fairy stories, for instance, that doesn't admit myth, that isn't open to a sort of divine arbitrariness, um, what Chesterton likes to talk about in, in, in terms of childhood understandings of magic um, and fairy stories. So the third theme that I'd like to look at is um, humility. Um, and humility, I think, is the at the core of what Kierkegaard wants to do in the concluding unscientific postscript. Um, he, in all of his idea of religiousness, um, and in particular, <clears throat> not just religiousness A, which is sort of the common religiousness, but religiousness B, which is hard to to nail down exactly what he means by it, but somehow it's this, this next step or fulfillment of, or um, there's something more in religiousness B that he's trying to emphasize that there's something particularly inward and at the core of what it means to be a Christian in religiousness B 
Um, and I think at the center of what he means by religiousness B is um, his distinction between the low and the high. And it's the recognition that uh, as a human being, you are low. Um, you are especially low in comparison with God. We might think of uh, what Rudolf Otto has called creature consciousness. It's this awareness that you are a creature and there's an infinite distance between you and God. Um, and that infinite distance isn't um, really lessened by the incarnation. It's almost intensified um, because what has happened is, is the infinite distance remains, but uh, the God has come as a gift. And so now there's also an infinite gift to go with it. Um, and the proper response is to hold simultaneously in a state of paradox your awareness that there's um, you could never be worthy of this gift and your confidence that this gift has yet been given. Um, and this characterizes what Kierkegaard means by humility. I think this um, creature consciousness, this, this metaphor of often speaking of low and high, um, which is something that Chesterton critiques um, this, this physical physical language. Um, but I think what Kierkegaard means by the low and high, he explains sufficiently that Chesterton might agree with quite a bit of it. Um, this unwillingness to, to make yourself um, God. Um, Chesterton's going to come at it with a, a Catholic perspective rather than a Protestant, um, and particularly a Lutheran pietist perspective that Kierkegaard has um, is quite different from the Catholic perspective um, because within the Catholic tradition you have the Greek fathers um, and you have the idea of divinization and this is something that Kierkegaard um, would not like uh, he, he in fact finds the idea that you could become in any way like God that you could become properly holy um, he thinks that that is one of the main problems with the medieval monasticism um, he, Kierkegaard praises monasticism um, because of its um, sort of all-in-ness. That, that is, when you become a monk, you sort of fully commit. Um, but he thinks that it was not sufficiently humble. This may be historically true of certain monks, of course, um, certain even whole swaths of monasteries. Um, and, and yet, um, Chesterton would say that uh, we we are called to to participate in the gift that is the incarnation. Um, but back to sort of maybe a, a point of similarity rather than difference between Chesterton and Kierkegaard. Um, Chesterton says, this is page 54 of Orthodoxy, uh, he, he says that in the past, humility uh, was largely meant as a restraint upon the arrogance and infinity of the appetite of man. Um that is, humility was understood as a limiting of the self, a recognition of the self as small. Right? It became evident that if a man would make his world large, he must always be making himself small. Um, so the, the imagination of giants, for instance, is a way of making your, lar your world large and therefore seeing yourself as properly small. Um, and this limiting... Um, allows allows you to have um, to, to have 
a certain kind of pleasure. Um, Chesterton says that all this giantesque imagination is at the bottom entirely humble. Um, and this is perhaps the mightiest of the pleasures of man. It is impossible without humility to enjoy anything, even pride. Um, so humility had to do with um, appetites, with ambition, and properly restraining those appetites and ambition, and seeing yourself with this creature consciousness, and seeing yourself as small compared to the world. And something that helped with that was imagining the world as, as larger than yourself. Um, and this allows you to have an appropriate enjoyment of the world, enjoyment as a small part of it. Um, but Chesterton says humility has been shifted in its, um, in its central meaning, or that is, people have used the, the term humility to refer to um, the, sort of the wrong sort of thing. He says, what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. Um, a man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Right now, um, men are sort of encouraged to doubt the truth, but never to doubt themselves. Um, and this is a movement that Chesterton is, is pushing back strongly against, right? He said, um, you should, of course, doubt yourself. Um, that's crazy not to. Um, but you should never doubt the truth because it's truth. Um, 